Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn and be inspired together. In this week's episode of Holistic Health Chats, I interviewed as a guest speaker on Steph Lowe's podcast, Health, Happiness and Humankind. Steph and I cover various facets of women's health, menstrual health education and the various problems that exist in the standard of care. The specific areas that Steph and I cover include birth control and period education, our conception and fertility landscape and the significant gaps that we see in testing for optimal health And then equally the conversation around estrogen and bone health and what this means for women that are going through peri, menopause and menopause. Essentially, we answer the question, are updates needed in the standard of care provided to females? Before we dive into this week's episode, if you're currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is booking in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we'll discuss your health goals or challenges, what you can expect to get from consultations, the likely time frame to expect this outcome, and of course, we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead at the end of that consult, we will book you in for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need time to think, that's absolutely okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, all you need to do is head to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book now section or you can also find this link in the show notes. I hope to meet you very soon. Hi, Selene, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. It's great to be back. I'm, I say this every episode, but I am particularly excited about this episode because we're obviously hearing and having these common conversations with our female clients and it's about time we had a conversation around the updates that are needed to the standard of care and, and how we can help our listeners navigate their health journey differently. Yeah, definitely. I think the things that we're going to talk about today are, I mean, there's many issues, I think, a lot of shortcomings, but Mm -hmm. I think these are some of the key ones that we see time and time again. And really, as it pertains to sort of those different stages of the life cycle that a female will go through, which we'll talk about, I really think the issue begins sort of before perhaps an issue with the standard of care and more so begins with a lack of education around Uh, women's health and also menstrual health education that really should be at that early high school level. Mm. Yeah. So let's start there because the, the lack of education, I think, is what we're seeing now in the female clients that come to see you and I. So that's a function of, of their generations. So obviously we are seeing amazing improvements in high school that differ to both you and I Mm -hmm. and our experience growing up. But obviously what we're seeing now is the flow on effect of that 
that lack that did exist and obviously still needs a lot of work. Yeah, definitely. I, I That's definitely true. That is probably changed a lot since mm-hmm. we we're at school. And I think majority of the clients that I see are sort of later 20s to mid 30s. That's my main demographic, I would say. So of course, there is a big lag time there. But in saying that, I do have a large portion of clients in their sort of early 20s as well, which is not such a huge time Mm. gap. And I think from my understanding in conversations with them, it has improved, but I still think that there's a big gap there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what conversations are you having about menstrual health? And I guess, yeah, what are the the gaps in knowledge that you're hearing time and time again? I think the main ones more so relating to that later generation would just be a complete lack of understanding about how our menstrual cycle actually works. You know, that really common one that comes up is not understanding what day one of your menstrual cycle mm-hmm. is a lot of women still think that day one is the day after your period finishes. And it's actually, you know, the first day of your bleed and how this I think flows into, I guess the issues that we might have later in life is often women might come to us wanting to conceive. That might be one of their health goals. And it's almost, it's a steep learning curve, I think for a lot of women, because there is, sometimes a sense of urgency there in wanting that outcome and they feel like they're needing to decipher and unpack all of these different symptoms that their body is giving them to understand when they're fertile, when they're ovulating. And I think if we were starting this much earlier and we had this understanding much earlier that we wouldn't be maybe so stressed about trying to unpack all of that like yesterday. (laughs) Yes. And realizing, oh, I actually don't understand my body, which I think Mm -hmm. is just something that we're seeing all the time. You know, Ellie and I have spoken about this more recently around the questioning that we would ask in like an intake form or in that first appointment. And the question might be, how long is your cycle? Mm -hmm. And the answer is almost always, oh, five days or seven days, thinking it's just the menstruation Mm -hmm. period. And so, yeah, obviously, as practitioners, we can always be changing our language to make sure our client is understanding the question, but it happens too many times for me to, you know, for it to just be about reframing things. It really is clearly that there's this lack of understanding around, okay, so your menstrual month, what's happening within that? And, you know, what are the days that we're talking about when it is menstruation, ovulation, the entire length of the menstrual month and obviously other symptoms and things that we would be noting cyclically. Yeah, definitely. And I think sort of um, this is slightly different, I suppose, to understanding your cycle, but in that, again, early teenage years or even early 20s, the next sort of big conversation that we're often having is around birth control, I think. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just want to preface, I think you have to preface everything at the moment, but it's obviously not our role as practitioners to sway you one way or the other or tell you you shouldn't take it or you should or anything like that. But something I think we can discuss with you is the risks and and the potential upsides of it um, and also alternative methods. So discussing things like the daisy or the temp drop, but if there's if you don't have that understanding of your cycle to begin with, you're you're honestly not even going to be open to those options being a thing. And I think time and time again, 
what I hear in clinic is just that the continual message of the pill being literally the magic pill, like we all say there's no such thing as a magic pill, but I still think birth control is sold as a magic pill Mm -hmm. continually to women will say, you know, oh, now that I've come off the pill, my cycle's not regular. And it was when I was on the pill, which again, just shows that, you know, they're being told that it's going to balance your hormones and regulate your period, but we know that you're not actually having a proper period. So, and I think a lot of women tuning in are probably like WTF. They didn't even actually know that to this yeah. day because it looks just like what you were having, except it's a little quote unquote better if you were going on the pill to sort of regulate things. And that's fascinating to me because, you know, it's actually not uncommon to have an irregular cycle or even a heavy period as a teenager and this is all you know those estrogen receptors which are still maturing that beautiful dance between estrogen and progesterone which is again still maturing and most young women are going on birth control well before they have that maturation cycle complete so then they're in their 30s and they're coming off birth control and they still have a very immature cycle, which is quite surprising to them because in their mind they've had decades of a period, but in our eyes they haven't really. They've probably only had like one or two years. So coming off the pill can also look like um, a sort of a bad decision because the period is not normal, but that's a function of, of time and, of course, the damage that the birth control can do. Yeah, definitely. I think that's why the issue starts early on because, I mean, imagine if, you know, early on when girls are first getting their period or even before that but maybe when they're first getting them, there was a conversation being had around like what a menstrual cycle is supposed to look like, how it can make you feel, and then also how to take care of it I think is really important because particularly I think around that teenage years I've got like a client in mind popping into my head who had a lot of issues with her menstrual cycle but when we went through a lot of those dietary and lifestyle factors like none of the basics were being covered right Mm. and so she had really heavy periods she had really irregular periods and I thought you know yeah it could be the irregular side of things could certainly be that you've only been cycling for you know 12 months but it could also be the fact that you're slightly insulin resistant and you're Mm -hmm. eating all of this sugar which is really common for that for that period of your life, you know, you've got a lot more autonomy. And even if you do have quite a uh, sort of like healthy home life, usually you're spending much more time with friends and potentially eating more junk food than you would normally. And that's a huge factor in messing with your menstrual cycle. Often you're on your screen and you're up late at night. Like this particular client coming to mind was going to bed at like 2am and then sleeping till 8am and things like that. Like They're all the really basic things that we would address with a client. And I think if a conversation was had with young women early on about those really, really simple fundamental things, like maybe we would avoid even experiencing some of those symptoms to begin with. Yeah, but we live in a culture, especially with the birth control, it's like this pharmaceutical intervention. And like you said, it can be sold as being the magic solution when you tell someone that they need to reduce their sugar or go to bed earlier, it's not sexy enough. Like you see your client's reaction. Like you can almost think, you know, they're like, they're really wanting something way more than that. (laughs) It can't be that simple, can it? But we see it time and time again that those foundations create incredible health and 
you know, remove a lot of symptoms, almost all, especially when it is, you know, so foundational in someone quite young. It's not decades and decades of sort of a health decline. No, no, definitely. And I think, you know, flowing on from the birth control, this is something that's been brought up before, certainly, but just that there's not, I don't know, I, I still don't believe there's enough of a conversation had around the potential risks when that is prescribed of any, like whether it be, you know, the the pill or an IUD or a Mirena or whatever it is, I still don't think anyone's sitting down with you and saying, these are the symptoms you need to be looking out for. If you start experiencing them, come back to me and we'll have a conversation about what we can do. Because sometimes in clinic, I'll pick up if someone has gone on birth control and started having aura migraines Mm -hmm. and things like that, which we know is a really big red flag for increasing your risk of blood clots. And you say that to someone and they go, oh, what? No, like no one ever told me that. And of course, no one's pulling out the leaflet to go through all the possible things you need to look out for. So I think, yeah, that there's a, there's just, that's a big hole. I think a big shortcoming in the standard of care that, you know, it's not, I'm not blaming the doctors. I'm not saying it's their fault, but I think there needs to be either more time allocated to appointments so that they can sit there and explain that to someone whether that's going to happen or not, I really don't know. But maybe it's on us to be exploring those side effects and understanding what it is that we're taking. Yeah, I think it has to be the the female because mm. I don't see the system no. <laughs> providing that the extra education that a general practitioner, obviously they're incredible in many ways, but their knowledge is quite broad, as we know. I think that's well accepted. Mm. You know, Ellie and I were talking about recently how, you know, it's not the right place. That consult is not the right place. But it, but if you are being offered the pill or the marina, then, yeah, you should be having a conversation about risk. So mm. I don't think I'm offering the solution, but it is clear that there's an issue, you know, that Marina for me is fascinating because it's FDA approved for heavy periods. So the doctor's giving it out to anyone or at least mentioning it to anyone who's coming in with a heavy period because that's what they have to do. But why can't they also have to discuss risks? Like Mm -hmm. that could just be a protocol update in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. A client of mine recently comes to mind and this was, I did some polls and things on Instagram about this actually because she basically had been prescribed the Mirena because not because she had heavy periods but because she had thickening of her endometrial lining, so endometrial hyperplasia, and her gynecologist had recommended that. And she'd actually realised that she, since having it in, was experiencing quite, quite severe anxiety and depression as a result of having it. So she went back three times to ask to have it removed or ask for an alternative and was advised that she was better off leaving it in because of the hyperplasia. For context, she had PCOS and wasn't ovulating at all, was getting maybe one or two periods in a year and so was therefore not producing any progesterone of Mm. her own. So of course the lining was just allowed to thicken and thicken because for anyone that doesn't know, progesterone actually thins the uterine lining. So if that's not being produced by your body, which is only produced after ovulation, where there's a small amount by the adrenals, but majority is um, after ovulation, then estrogen's just there doing a really great job at thickening that lining, thickening that lining. And when we talked about that, 
and that we were already working on addressing that. It was like this huge light bulb moment for her. And she then had that confidence to go back and have that conversation with her Mm -hmm. gynecologist and connect those dots and say, I'm actually really working hard on addressing my PCOS. You know, can I have it removed and let that give me six months to get uh, myself ovulating again? And if not, I'll come back to you for that though. I know, but (laughs) this is. This is the thing. This is the really interesting thing. So in having that, I was like, wow, she had to go back four times mm-hmm. to get this like approved, this device to come out of her. And so I put a poll sort of thing up asking questions about if anyone had say an IUD and what their experience was like if they'd requested to have it removed. And I know this is so anecdotal, like this is obviously not, you know, a research paper or anything <laughs> like that. It's my small Instagram following, but it was like 80% of people and there was over 50 people or something that voted that said that they re- experienced resistance from their healthcare practitioner to have that removed because of the side effects that they were experiencing. And, you know, I just think that's wild. It is wild, but I often think what's happening is they're dealing with a doctor who's mm. never had the marina in or has never been on birth control. Like this is a side note, but a client came to me and she was on this like crazy cocktail of like mental health medications and we collaborated with someone really experienced in that realm but I'll never forget him saying to her you know doctors should not be allowed to prescribe this unless they've been on it personally and they understand what this does to you and what the withdrawal process looks like so these are these people handing out marinas because they think it's a you know, a magic solution, not really understanding what it can do to someone, whether it is mentally or, you know, I posted about the marina recently and there were a number of women who had permanent periods, you know, just like bleeding all the time or cysts or pelvic inflammatory disease, like which we know are, again, common side effects. But I don't think it's, I I still think it's that rare. It's that rare thing that keeps coming up. It's not actually that rare and we're not really appreciating or accepting when women are coming in with these side effects that that we should be listening to. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, of course, I know my view is certainly warped because often we're getting people who have had complications or side Mm -hmm. effects coming to see us for alternatives. So I'm fully aware of that. But it's it's a daily, like it's all the time. Mm -hmm. It's all the time. And so, yeah, I just really don't think that you can say that it's rare. <laughs> no, and there's obviously not enough reporting of it as well. But the, the other side, of which we always come back to it, it's not treating the root cause, right? No. So birth control is one thing, but you know, a lot of the women who start birth control, not going to their doctor for that pure reason, mm. they're going for the heavy periods or the PMS or the skin issues or whatever it might be. So again, we're not looking at the root cause at all. Yeah, and I often think, though, if you're not explained the side effects in the initial stages, well, a lot of people probably don't ever, like they might never connect the dots or it might take them a really long time, right, because you could quite easily blame that on a variety of other factors going on for you or just think it's unexplained cause, you know, like I think a lot of the time there's a notion that anxiety and depression, that sometimes there is no cause, which, you know, quite possibly there is. And so if we think about that, if someone's never sat you down and said, look, the risks of the IUD or the Mirena are that you might experience X, Y, Z. If you don't know that, how are you supposed to even watch out for those Mm. symptoms occurring in the first place, right? Yeah, totally. I feel like, and you probably will feel the same, but we end up playing detective, right? Because we put the timeline together. And, you know, there are 
I don't know. You know, and we don't expect everyone to remember exactly what year X, Y, and Z happened. But when you actually spend time having that conversation, you see the light bulb go off in your client's mm. mind where they're like, oh, hang on a minute. That did start occurring after that. And, and you know, putting that puzzle together for them is so powerful. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't, I don't want it to be me that says, no, you have to stop the pill or no, you have to stop the marina. They almost always come to that decision themselves when they have more understanding and more education and then obviously an alternative root cause plan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be honest, mo- majority of clients, if they are on the pill, have come to me because they want to come off mm-hmm. and they have maybe gone on because they experienced symptoms before and it was prescribed for symptom management. And so they really want to address things holistically so that they can hopefully have a smoother transition in going off. So yeah, I'm never one to influence someone to, to you know make a decision like that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's more complicated for a lot of people, of for course. Sure. Yeah. To the next phase. <laughs> yeah, the next phase I think would be when women, if they're choosing to, are maybe looking at trying to conceive. So as we touched on, like that foundational knowledge needs to be there to know when you're actually fertile. I think this is something you've spoken about on the show in depth with Jenna from the Fertility Mm. Suite. So we don't need to go into that in too much depth. But I think um, a big issue I see in clinic is that it can be a really stressful thing for women who are wanting to conceive like within even if it's six months because it feels like there's a lot they have to do because obviously it's not just about understanding your fertile window. We're also looking about at, sorry, different nutrients that they might be deficient in and optimizing those nutrients. We're also looking at any other factors that they might need to address like their gut health or even their hormones if they've come off birth control and they're a little bit haywire. And so I think it can be just really overwhelming for a lot of women because that key piece of information that they could have had, you know, 15 or more years ago was not there. So it's this really steep learning curve for them. Yeah, it is. And ovulation is, I think, you know, and Jenna said this actually, like the term menstrual cycle needs a rebrand. It's just, it's the wrong, I think that the focus has been so much on the period. And as you can imagine, it's more obvious. And especially if there are kind of issues there, even if it is like the PMS in the lead up or the heavy periods, like it's obviously a lot more obvious, but it's really not, it's, we shouldn't be calling it a menstrual cycle because ovulation is that main event, but very few women understand that or how to detect it. And so then, yeah, we're starting from scratch and they literally don't even know if they've been ovulating. So then that does obviously change that fertility conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as I said, we won't focus too much on that, but perhaps we can switch gears a little and talk about nutrients and things Mm. that we might want to look at. So I, I don't have it in front of me as to, you know, which tests are standardly done, But I can speak, I guess, from my personal experience just recently, I went and had, it wasn't even preconception bloods I was requesting. I just requested trimester one bloods. And the only thing nutrients that were included was folate and iron. And that's it. Iron studies? Iron studies. Yeah. Yes. And that's it. So that's all that was included. And I mean, we have so much more research now to show that it's so much more as you've talked about before than folate. And I think one of the key ones to talk about would be iodine because it is hard to get over the line through Medicare. 
almost impossible yeah yeah so even say recently like I had my iodine levels tested would have been about 18 months ago and they did come back low and even low according to the Medicare reference range so then when I went to have them retested I still had to pay for it out of pocket which I was happy to do of course but it's just one of those ones that unfortunately is really difficult to get pushed over the line and I think why this is an issue in terms of the preconception sort of area and pregnancy space is that iodine deficiency is shown, even moderate iodine deficiency, of course, to affect thyroid function, which plays a role in the baby's neurological and cognitive development. So even moderate iodine deficiency can cause delayed learning essentially in children, which is like really, really sad. That's a huge issue. And the thing I think about often is like, yes, the advice is to take a prenatal three months before trying to conceive, but a lot of people don't do that. And the other thing is that depending on where your deficiency might sit on that spectrum, the dosage that's in a standard prenatal might actually not even be enough to touch the sides potentially, right? So even if you are doing the right thing and taking a good quality prenatal, if you don't know that deficiency is there, you know, it might not be enough. Absolutely. And iodine is one of those nutrients that is hard to obtain from the diet in Australia. You know, not a lot of people know this, but the soil depletion is really relevant when it comes to iodine. So much so that we used to give like children in primary school iodine supplementation until it was mandated that breads and cereals were fortified with iodized salt. But then our clients aren't eating bread and cereal really. And then we don't eat like Japanese style with the beautiful nori and, you know, lovely whole food sources of iodine. So I think deficiencies are far more common than we realize. And if we're not testing, we don't have data on that, right? But I'm certainly seeing that in clinic as becoming really quite common. And yeah, it's it's one of the more challenging ones to just simply go away and eat yeah. sushi every day or nori every day, right? So I think it is one where supplementation is more likely to be beneficial. Mm. But if we don't have the information, how do we know what we're actually navigating? Yeah, it, absolutely. And I think, you know, it doesn't stop just with that. I think, you know, we could be testing like thyroid hormones, for example, are a really common one that this ties into iodine, of course, because iodine is really important for the production of your thyroid hormones. But again, that's one that isn't tested. And we know it's up to, I think it's 16.7% of women will go on to experience postpartum thyroiditis, which is a huge amount. If we had that information, earlier on, there's so much we could do to be preventing that. And again, I guess from a personal side of things, like, you know, that about 18 months ago, so same time I had my iodine tested, I just per chance decided to test all of my thyroid antibodies and hormones. And I did have high thyroid antibodies. And throughout this whole process, I've asked my doctor, you know, can you test my, can you do a full thyroid panel again? Because I'm pregnant now and I know this is a time when I'm more susceptible to having issues, et cetera. And no, it's that they test TSH. They won't Mm -hmm. test the rest of it. Honestly, just baffling to me that there is this understanding there that how important this is for this stage of life and how it can affect fetal development. But yet we won't put it through Medicare. Yeah, and it's not their fault because no, it, it, of course, it is the I'm system. Not, absolutely. No, I know you're not saying that. It's just it's it's infuriating because 
you know, to me, that's 16%. Like if we're not testing antibodies, because they're certainly not routinely tested postpartum anyway, right? Mm. So if we're not testing, I don't think those stats could possibly be correct. So how actually how many people mm. are experiencing symptoms like fatigue or depression, you know, depression, constipation, yeah. their hair's falling out, and everyone's just saying, oh, you're just pregnant or you've just got a newborn or it's da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And, like, it's this gaslighting of women that I feel is underlying a lot of this, and it's the system. And so I don't want to waste time talking about that today, but it's, it is a greater appreciation of what is required for preconception health because, unfortunately, yeah. the conversation is take all of it. And like mm-hmm. end of consultation, and that's just p- appalling. Like we know so much more. Everyone knows how much I dislike Elevit as well. <laughs> so whilst there are other options, there are other key nutrients, as you are saying, that we have to highlight, or at least as women understand, so we advocate for ourselves in a system that's not really set up to help us, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think that's really the theme of today's conversation. Like mm-hmm. obviously, we you know, it would be amazing if the system was updated and when we were looking at people as more individuals rather than just, well, this is what basically the flow chart says and this is what's going to happen. But unfortunately, I, you know, I hold, wouldn't hold my breath that that would happen. So I do think the onus is on us to educate ourselves about what changes our bodies are actually going through at these different stages of life and understanding the risks or alternatives for different options that we might be offered when we are going to see a doctor. Yeah, absolutely. Advocating for yourself, like if if pregnancy <laughs> and childbirth doesn't teach you that, well, I think nothing will. So it is a really powerful time where you do see women mm. become like absolute detectives and researching. Like I just think it's so inspiring because yeah. I really think that that's not that you need to be an expert, but I think taking time to really understand the health journey and, and to navigate that system is really important because otherwise yeah. it's like a tick of the box at each sort of gestation week as we were talking about off air. Just with the iodine, I wanted to stay there for a minute because yeah. you, you did urinary iodine. I did so urinary iodine, yeah. That's one of the other things that I see as being an issue because doctors as a general rule, and it's someone who's more holistic that's doing, you know, salivary this and mm. stool that, they're not familiar with iodine testing because it is done via urinary. Well, my doctor said to me when I got the results, because what happened was basically I'd gotten a bunch of tests done through the doctor and then I'd ordered myself some as well and just gone and got them together. But for some reason, the lab just sends it all back to the doctor. So the doctor got this iodine test initially when I found out I was deficient and he said, oh, I actually don't even know what that test means so hopefully you know what to do with it <laughs> but do you imagine if we rocked up to a consult and just said that to a paying client like we spent hours researching for our clients right i know <sighs> yeah yeah, I was appalled by that. I was like, mm. maybe you hear that all the pre- time, though, and that's the reason why yeah. they often decline as well. One, it's of course care, and they don't want to be audited, and yeah. two, they're not trained, so they don't know how to help you if you come in with a deficiency or a polymorphism or whatever, depending on what we're testing. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And I think you know something I said earlier about like knowing that you do have alternatives maybe flows into like the oral glucose tolerance test and knowing that you can actually ask for other options. Mm -hmm. So just recently I had an appointment with my doctor and she said, oh, at our next appointment, I'll give you the referral for the oral glucose tolerance test and you'll be able to go and do that. 
And I said, well, actually, I'm opting out of that. I did test my insulin levels and HbA1c late last year, had an insulin of three and an HbA1c of around 5.1 or 5. So uh, I have really haven't made any big changes to my diet in being pregnant. I don't eat sugar. You know, I eat fruit, but I have really good blood sugar control. And she said, oh, okay, no worries. You can just do HbA1c instead. Which, while I wish she had have offered you that first, is actually a really great outcome yeah, because oh, I'm for still sure. hearing women who may may not have the same language as you be told that they can't do that, like that they can't just, I'm like, hang on a minute. No, like <laughs> she's not, the nurse cannot chain you to the chair and make you drink that glucose solution. So, you know, I guess the positive, and I've discussed this online quite a bit, is that obviously COVID did change that standard of care. Yeah. So women were being told they could <laughs> do air quotes. Lucky us. Um, yeah, <laughs> allowing us to make our decision for our own health and our baby. But, you know, the, that was one of the silver linings. So it's much more known now in the space mm-hmm. that we can be doing glucose tolerance tests on the high risk only. But there are still many conversations I have with women who unfortunately aren't dealing with the, that doctor or the nurse that are aware of that change. Yeah. And I think, like you said, being able to use the right language is really important instead of just going, oh, I don't want to do that. Being able to mm. kind of provide that evidence, I suppose, it is really important. But it's, yeah, it's just interesting how we're maybe not often presented with other options. It's kind of just, this is what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. Which is very common in the, in the birth sort of system. And, you know, again, I don't expect our listeners to suddenly become experts, but it's really good to have practiced a bit of an mm-hmm. elevator pitch because mm-hmm. if you say, no, thank you, it's going to come across as like dangerous that you're not Ignorant, interested in making maybe. sure that yeah. you don't have gestational diabetes, which of course is not what your intention is. Mm-hmm. You know, the intention is that I, I understand that I'm low risk, that I might be higher risk of a false positive because I don't eat sugar because I don't eat 150 grams of carbs per day as we've discussed on a recent episode with Bianca and I as well but yeah just having a little bit of that language can be so powerful and then knowing because that's what everyone should say is Mm. I would like to do HbA1c first and fructosamine at 27 weeks and if those levels are high of course I'll do a GTT so the practitioner that you're working with isn't thinking that you're totally risk adverse and that you're going to have undiagnosed GD or anything like that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously in working with a practitioner like yourself, this is something that you would be able to help your clients navigate and talk to them about how to actually have that dialogue with their doctor as well, because that's really important. It is because I think a lot of people have that conversation where they go in with a certain aim to a consult, like to, to politely decline the GTT or the GBS screen or whatever it is, but then they're not confident enough mm. and it's like their mind gets changed when really they actually are very true in their decision, but they perhaps don't have the right language in the doctor's eyes at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is important to be able to have, I guess, those sort of informed conversations with with your doctor instead of just saying no I I don't want to do it (laughs) yeah which is wild because like when I first shared that I declined the glucose tolerance test when I was pregnant with Grace so that's like four years ago Mm. now so things have changed of course but the the response was like what you don't have to do this are you kidding (laughs) like people were just completely shocked like I was some kind of 
free birthing hippie, right? Because I'm doing all these things really differently. But, you know, I think it's important to understand that there are options and it's come, it comes back to risk. Like we should yeah. be able to assess our own risk. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding the test, like, mm. you know, I think for like, and, and the logic, I think of it as well, like for someone like me or someone that is low risk, the glucose tolerance test is 75 grams of glucose, correct? Mm. That's, mm. that's, I think it, that's like, I calculated it. It's like 18 teaspoons of sugar in it's one two go. Of Coke. Like, I mean, I would never, mm. <laughs> I would never sit there and drink 18 teaspoons of sugar. I mean, I think about it in like a cup of tea. Imagine if you was to sit there and drink a tea with 18 mm. teaspoons of sugar in it, mm. like wild. I would feel awful. Well, after you'd that. probably be in a, like a coma, like a lot of yeah. women just feel horrific and they literally have to go home with the absolute crash of the sugar and the shakes and the sweats and the fatigue and yep. the bed like I mean you're pregnant right does that like you said logic does that logically make sense when there is actually another way mm. that involves a blood test and you'd be drawing blood at that stage of pregnancy anyway because hopefully you're testing your iron studies and your yep. hemoglobin so it's not even invasive in that sense because you'd be just adding it to a list yeah and then I think the Bigger issue I, I I see is that that's just waiting far too long to pull someone up if they have an issue with blood sugar control and, and they're at risk of GD, right? Like waiting till that end of pregnancy when if they were assessed when they went to their doctor and said, I'm looking to try and conceive or I'm early in trimester one and then they went to work with a nutritionist if they happen to have high levels. Like that could drastically change their outcomes if they address that like couple of months ago rather than when they're at that back end yeah absolutely and obviously each trimester is really different Mm. I think the issue in Australia is one because we're so risk adverse but two because there is this ethos where some doctors still believe that 26 weeks is where a blood sugar issue mm. starts for some mm. women, but because it's a very small percentage, we screen all and it's the same mm. with GBS and it's just become like so risk adverse that, you know, it's we treat every female the same, which is very unfair because we clearly all have very different health histories and health statuses and preconception health and pregnancy experiences. So we should be allowed to have a, you know, a different experience, especially when it comes to risk. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I guess we're short on time, but lastly, did you maybe want to touch on the osteoporosis side of things and sort of that transition into perimenopause and menopause? Yeah, I would love to. I think this is a really interesting area to unpack. Yeah. So for, I guess, anyone that's not aware, our osteoporosis risk, sorry, as women increases significantly after we go through menopause because of the declining levels of estrogen. So estrogen promotes what's called osteoblasts, which are the cells that build and produce bone. And so when we have that decline in estrogen levels, which is a natural function of going through menopause, um, naturally our essentially bone formation does decrease. And I believe the stat is it's about 10% within that first five years of menopause. And it is sort of known as the silent disease because there's not really any symptoms of osteoporosis. And I think the issue here is that the diagnosis or, or screening really for osteoporosis would be a DEXA scan. 
which is a type of x-ray able to look at bone density. And it's not routinely done until either you're at 70 or over or 65 and also have one of the risk factors such as a history of fractures, smoking, high alcohol intake, or a diet lacking in calcium, sedentary, or recurrent falls. So unless you fall into one of those categories, it's not routinely done until it's potentially too late. It's so late, like 70 year I mean, women go through menopause when they're 50. So yeah. What's happening over 20 years Mm. that's irreversible to me, like that is if there's any clear example of our reactive rather than proactive Mm. healthcare system is this. Yeah. I am just so disappointed when I'll ask a female client to speak to their doctor to get that referral for the radiologist for the DEXA and the doctor thinks we're both clinically insane. Mm. Like. Mm -hmm. Let's work. Let's look at your density now. How do we know a benchmark, or how do we know there's not uh, the onset or some signs of osteopenia if we don't do a DEXA? You can't tell any weight. That's why it's silent, as you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's just, you know, we need to start being proactive with our health because there's so many things that we can do ahead of the onset of a disease or a condition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having something like osteoporosis in old age is is devastating. Like it's not it's a small issue. If we think about yeah, the, yeah. the hip surgery and the complications that can often happen when we get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the conversation, I mean, women all are going to go through menopause at different ages. Mm-hmm. We know perimenopause can last anywhere from I think it's two to 12 years, something like that. But I think the conversation needs to essentially happen in that phase rather than mm. even waiting until menopause, right? Because in in perimenopause, we can look at those factors that we're doing to reduce our risk, looking at things like uh, resistance training with re- weights, looking at our vitamin D levels, making sure we're actually getting sun exposure every mm. day, making sure we're testing our vitamin D levels maybe a couple of times a year and that we're actually eating enough calcium-rich foods and looking at that and then thinking about when we might schedule in a DEXA scan to sort of assess our risk. Like let's not wait until we're 70 to check something like that. Yeah, it's a little bit of a side note, but unfortunately I think part of it is that menopause is this dirty word, which Mm. is not the case for many women, especially when they're very health conscious and they don't have insulin resistance and proactive with their health. But my experience is when I'm talking to a female in her, say, 40s as a general age um, age range rather, if I say perimenopause, you can tell they're freaking out and I'm having to really preface it and say, hang on a minute, this is like nowhere near menopause, but we know there's the decline in estrogen, so we know there's these associated symptoms and we could be talking about heavy periods here again, right, but it's Mm. still like your body's you know, showing you that there are some hormonal changes. This is what we need to consider over the next 10 or 15 years. And it can be a long time, but because perimenopause includes the Mm. word menopause, we associate that with like being geriatric or something, which many women love menopause. They feel like it's their second lease on life. And we see this happening now with certainly improvements in health and absolutely the understanding that menopausal symptoms are significantly driven by insulin resistance in a country like Australia Mm. where type 2 diabetes is rife. It's no surprise that we think menopause is going to be negative when, in fact, that doesn't have to be the case at all. Yeah, absolutely. I often 
will have those conversations with clients. And I often see in an intake form, one of my questions is, you know, are you approaching or past menopause? And sometimes they'll tick no to that when, you know, clinically we would maybe look through the notes and the symptoms and things like that and think potentially otherwise. And similarly, when you start having those conversations, yeah, I I do think there's resistance sometimes Mm. to that. We, we see it in, I see it in early 40s, mm. especially when the females finished having babies some time ago. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, like depending on what their journey was. So it's fascinating. There's a lot of reframing there. Mm. But, you know, you, you make a very good point about the um, the guidelines, like the Medicare guidelines is um, something that we need to be able to speak to our doctor about because I'd much rather pay for a DEXA scan than find out I had osteopenia or worse, osteoporosis. Absolutely. And just out of curiosity in clinic, at what point do you perhaps suggest that to your clients? Usually if I've tested estrogen, because I Mm -hmm. would almost always be doing that. So I'm thinking of a client this week, actually, she's 44, so I'd consider that quite young. Mm -hmm. And her estrogen's looking quite low. Mm -hmm. So that's our next consideration. Yeah separate to the sort of fertility journey that she and I are working on, but something that has to be on your radar. Yeah, definitely. I don't, think, I don't think strength training is actually that common for women, unfortunately. Like I, I commit to F45. I tell you I don't love it, but I do it because I know the strength training is good for me. But I think about my mother's journey, and she's obviously well and truly through menopause now because she's mid-60s. Mm. But, you know, it's pretty hard to get a 60-year-old to start in the gym. And and then obviously our generation are different in what we do, but we're not the ones mm. that are going through menopause right now. So a lot of it is like this cultural thing that I think we're seeing shifting. Mm. But, you know, we've got to acknowledge that strength training in our sort of 30s is really important because it's a behaviour that hopefully we continue for lifelong, knowing what the benefits are into our old age. Yeah, definitely. And I think with anything, I mean, hopefully, something like decreasing your risk of osteopenia or osteoporosis is enough motivation to get you to go right and obviously you're going to have that intrinsic motivation once you do get started because you'll feel great after doing it but I think the motivation should be there I think particularly if you do go and do something like a DEXA and I think that is why testing can be beneficial in a lot of instances we've talked about that before as well because it often is that really motivating factor it's not just you or I saying based on XYZ it would be great for you to start including this this many times a week people kind of go oh yeah yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. Uh, once you can see that on a test result, you, there's not really any more kind of grey, right? <laughs> there's no grey, and especially when it comes to osteo, osteoclasts or when, what we're talking mm. about, like that is the reality. Like the answer is strength training. Yeah. I can't change that. <laughs> I'm sorry the answer is not like yin yoga. You know, that's yep. just the fact, right? Although I have looked at literature around hiking and certainly when you are a hiker that is carrying a backpack and there is mm-hmm. that degree of load bearing lows, it doesn't yeah. literally have to be a 45 so I'm not saying that but there needs to be load bearing that's a fact that we have to come mm. to terms with and then we need to navigate that space to work out what we're going to do and find something that we enjoy because we've got to be doing when we're 70 clearly <laughs> yeah for sure for sure and that again just comes back to understanding what your body and physiology is doing at those different points in the life cycle because it's quite possible that you won't be offered early screening for something Mm. like that. So just really understanding where your, you know, 
risk factors are, I guess, and where changes in hormones are going to have an impact on your health and what you need to be aware of at different points in time. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. I've loved this conversation. So advocating for ourselves is obviously very important and probably no more than in the life phases or the life stages that we've discussed. So thank you for joining me for this conversation today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.